Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk, a sub-China podcast in the Seneca Network. So, have you ever wondered how the sausage gets made in China? How policy is formulated? Who proposes it? And how it gets refined or amended? With no campaigns and no campaign contributions, how do outside stakeholders influence policy? To try to answer all these questions and more, we turn to two of Trivium China's founding partners, Andrew Polk and Trey McGarver, economics and politics specialists, respectively. A special shout out is in order to our returning guest Andrew, who deigned to come on the show before I had any audience to speak of. So Andrew and Trey, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks for yeah, having us. Yeah, our pleasure. So we were trying to come up with the Chengyu for the smoky back room, but actually there isn't one. Basically, because as you were saying before the show, why would politics ever not be done in a smoky back room? Yeah, exactly. I thought this was really funny. So for the listeners, Jordan asked b- before we started what my favorite politics chungyu was, and so I was trying to think if whether or not there was a phrase to denote the smoky back room. I couldn't think of anything. I was I was pretty sure it was just because of my poor Chinese, but so I I canvassed our Chinese colleagues, and they thought about it for a while, and they said we we just don't have anything. And I think I think the reason they don't have anything is because it would be redundant in a Chinese context. All all Chinese politics happens in smoky back rooms, so there's there's no need to really to designate that. Yeah, you know that secondhand smoke is not one of the the risks they put on the job description and joining the party, but maybe they should in the future. So starting with Chinese politics, where else can you start but with the Communist Party? So, Trey, what is the Communist Party? <laughs> what isn't the Communist Party? Probably a lot of the the Communist Party's 89 million members are probably sitting in a smoky room as we speak. When you're thinking about policymaking in China, you have to start with the party because ultimately the party is in control and the state, the government apparatus, is subservient to the party. The distinction between the two can actually be very confusing. Most party leaders tend to have roles in the government. Vice versa, most government leaders also happen to be party members. But increasingly, and especially under Xi Jinping, it's really the party that's calling the shots. And so, the party is the final arbiter of what happens. The problem is that the party is not very transparent.、Um, so many party decisions, party meetings, often aren't even publicized. The documents that, that the party approves, only a handful of them are actually published. So I think it's it's important to keep that in mind when you're talking about the Chinese policymaking process. That in the end, it's going to be the party that is giving final approval and and setting the direction for these things. But despite that, there is a fair amount of transparency within the process, and you can see a lot of what the government does. So I think to answer your question, perhaps a, a little more helpfully. In general, the way we think about it is the party is kind of setting strategy, setting direction, and then the government is tasked with formulating the policies and implementing the policies that carry out the party's strategy. Sure. So this is an interesting debate you've seen online in the English language China media sphere. James Palmer he wrote this piece a few months ago, basically being like. Everyone who's writing about Chinese politics has no idea what they're talking about, and all it is is smoky back rooms. So why do you have more confidence than his piece that there's actually a lot you can glean from what's going on in this policymaking process? 
Well, you know, I actually don't disagree with James's piece. I think he's correct, and I think what James is really talking about is Chinese politics. So, you know, in particular, when we're talking about who's up and who's down, I think about the the process leading up to the the 19th Party Congress in October 2017, where everybody's trying to figure out who's going to be on the Politburo, who's going to be on the Politburo Standing Committee. And you would see lots of speculation that that seemed to be informed, but I would agree with James that a lot of that was, at best, informed guessing, uh, at worst, just unfounded guessing. So when we're talking about the political dynamics and what exactly is going on behind the walls of Zhongnanhai, I agree with James that we don't really know very much. But I think that is something that is separate from the policymaking process. And so I think if you look at the policies that come out, not only can you infer a lot, the state has actually made explicit in many ways what it actually does. And so what we do, I mean, a lot of what our work at Trivium is, is going in, looking at these documents, finding out how they were formed, seeing who input into the process, and then mapping the different forces that are are coming together or pulling against each other uh, to get these policies made. And so I, I think we'll probably go into the details of, of some of these policies and we can we can talk about how that happens in practice. Sure. Yeah, Jordan, I just I think it's one point to maybe make for your listeners is to point out that the party is an organization and it's a bureaucracy. And mm-hmm. just like any other organization or bureaucracy, it has an ethos, it has norms, um, and and it has sort of KPIs for the people within it. I think there's sort of, along with your point about people having this debate about how much can we actually know about the party or politics in China, there's also this kind of debate. Is the Communist Party some amorphous, nefarious boogeyman, or is it just kind of a matter-of-fact bureaucracy that has one primary goal, which is to stay in power, and then does everything subsequent to support that goal? There's a debate there, and for people you know who are trying to understand, again, from the policy angle, how China works, it's important to realize that party members are people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, you know, they're real live people that you can talk to and interact with. And if you're in a company, you know, you're going to be interacting with them and understanding what their goals and objectives are within that bureaucracy is important. And to get back to the point about the debate that James is bringing up, more and more of the information about party KPIs, party goals is available publicly. Sure. Right? So, you know, 20 years ago, there was nothing available publicly that we could see. But now there's actual information about this stuff on the internet. And so I think the debate's not settled. There is a lot we don't know, but there's more and more information out there. And as Trey said, like, if you go do the hard work to do it, then you can at least have a better understanding. Maybe it's not a black box, but it's a, a gray box, a smoky gray box. It's a transparent box filled with smoke. <laughs> Red, red tinge, maybe. I don't know. You know we got we got there's a, there's a hammer and sickle on the side, right? But you can you can peer in around the um uh, and the paint. So so here's an analogy for you. We we have Trump talking about the deep state out to get him all the time. I imagine the true deep state, though, are these 90 million party members throughout government, throughout the SOEs, throughout private industry in China. I mean, this is if you want to talk deep state, this is probably a much more hands-on way of a government sort of trying to push its own agenda. Yeah, again, actually, I'd probably push back there. I would say one way to read the party building campaign that Xi Jinping has has really focused on in his six years in power so far is to see it as evidence of the fact that 
many party members are not following the party rules or acting in the interests of the party. So when we talk about 89 million people, the truth is, is as Andrew said, they're people and they have their own interests. And this is a, a big and unwieldy organization. So I think that needs to be understood sure. when, when we talk about this underlying organization, that it's not monolithic. And so you have different people within the organization with different priorities, trying to push things in different ways. And then once you get out into the provinces, once you get to lower levels, it's just even more complicated. So, so Trey, say you were a ambitious 35-year-old bureaucrat. Where would you want to sit in this giant ecosystem of uh, communist bureaucracy? Um, nowhere. <laughs> Come on, man. Um, well, I, I mean, I think, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the structure of policymaking. I mean, this is, this is a classic Leninist organization. It is extremely hierarchical. There are, and this is why you can understand what's going on, it is rules-based. But I think what that means is that if you are a 35-year-old ambitious person, you don't, you don't have a lot of leeway to do what you want to do. You really are a tiny, tiny cog in a giant machine. And so, you know, my friends that, that are in the system or have been in the system, definitely there, there's, you know, it's a, a kind of self-selecting pool that will actually hang out with me. But, but I would say all of them, you know, have voiced their frustration at the bureaucracy and, and the lack of initiative that one can take within it. So Sure. Yeah. And honestly, to make, I mean, if, if you want to break out of the, of the cog ship of being a cog, you have to be connected from the beginning, right? It's not like... You really kind of work your way up from bootstraps through the, through the Communist Party. You have some kind of connection. All the guys at the top ultimately have some kind of benefactor or some kind of connection, right? Yeah, I mean, I love the, the whole idea of the, um, you know, where the, the, the propaganda is like, we're China, we have the greatest meritocracy in the world. Look at all these people. They've had all these positions and they've been training their whole lives to be the place they are. Well, I mean, they also all happen to have like parents who were on the long march or whatever. It's it's sort of like the Warren Buffett line where people are like, so, you know, how can you really tell if an asset manager is a good one? Well, it's like, well, if one person trains six of them and it's random, but like hit this guy's six trainees, like four out of six of them make money every single year, then maybe there's something that has to do with their what they've learned. If we flip the coin with 90 million people and the 20 who get to the top of the heap all happen to have parents who are connected, maybe there's a little more going on with the whole with the whole meritocracy thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's really clear if you look at the leadership. Certainly the leadership that we have now, it seems that the best way to, to get promoted is to know Xi Jinping, especially if you've known him for a long time. So that that said, I also, I, I think there are, you know, we were just talking about people we know who just sat the civil service exam. That's, that's true. I think, you know, it's true in all systems that connections help. So I, I'm not sure how different China is in that respect sure. from other places. That's I, th- I think that may just be kind of how the world works. Yeah, I think that's actually an important point. I mean, depending on, you know, who the listenership is of the podcast, I mean, just demystifying the party to some extent, I think is a really important task. And, you know, when you think about it that way, it helps to, again, goes back to my original point that this is an organization, a bureaucracy made of human beings 
that operates like most other bureaucracies in the world. Sure. Let's now turn to the, uh, the this this really interesting and very well animated, I must add. Uh, <laughs> That's all me. Uh, <laughs> policy uh, organization document of, of how policy turns into action in the Chinese system. So, so where does it start? First of all, let me just say that those animations are not me. We have a dedicated designer uh, and that it's all her. <laughs> But yeah, I think um, the the piece that you're referring to, which which can be found on our website, really takes as the foundation of of Chinese policy the five year planning cycle, and so it's it's a bit simplified to say that everything revolves around the five year plans, but they are kind of anchors within the policy making process, and so I, I'm guessing anybody who's listening to a China Econ Talk podcast is probably familiar with five year plans, but just. As a refresher, much as the name would imply, every five years the party state gets together and charts the economic and social development goals for the following five years. There's a very clear, demarcated process for putting that document together, and then so you have a national five-year plan, and then you have kind of cascading subsidiary five-year plans covering everything from healthcare to environmental protection to energy and then down to specific industries within those areas that flow from that national plan. So the five-year national plan is more vague and then it gets more specific and then we get down to the KPIs or how different do these documents look from the, from the national to the very specific? Well, they're, they're quite different once you get down to the specific. I, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of talking in abstractions, but I think the easiest way to understand that, to understand this, is to just take a, a very concrete example. So if you look at the national plan, which was approved in March 2016, mm-hmm. following on from that, you then have a five-year plan for energy. That five-year plan for energy will have targets for coal consumption, natural gas consumption, renewable energy consumption, things like that. But it doesn't really tell you how you how you achieve those goals, right? So it'll say, oh, we want to decrease energy intensity by 15%, but there are no details. So then following on from that, those plans kind of get kicked down to lower-level policymakers within the system, mm. and they say, you go and figure this out. So then... In this very specific case, in mid-2017, I think, we ended up having opinions to increase the utilization of natural gas, which again was not very specific, but actually laid out the, the broad areas of how you were going to increase natural gas usage. And then that itself then cascades down into more detailed policies about, okay, well, we need to increase the grid, the natural gas grid infrastructure, or we need to reform the pricing mechanism so that gas is cheaper and we have more consumption of it. And then even those policies themselves will have more detailed implementing measures where, you know, you, you'll have specific, um, you know, formulations of how you're going to determine the gas price, et cetera, et cetera. So where are the inputs for these types of decisions? I mean, I, I assume that the Chinese government is looking to the outside gas pricing experts to understand what's going on here. But how do the outside inputs feed into all of these decisions? Yes. So I think this is the most interesting part of, of the process and something that, again, going back to, to thinking of the smoky back room and then this monolithic deep party state, um, in fact, a lot of the policymaking is actually outsourced. So, you know, going back at kind of a a level up, when, for instance, you had the the National Energy Administration was in charge of of, 
um, overseeing the drafting for the five-year plan for energy. But they didn't actually do the drafting themselves. Instead, they posted publicly. They said, hey, we've got 20 topics that we want to study. Everything from you know energy security to integrating renewables into the grid, 20 energy-specific questions. And then they said, hey, we need people to help us solve these. So then what happened is there was actually a public bidding process where you know, universities, think tanks, companies. So these are literally contracts. It's like, we'll give you 100,000 yen. Yeah. Please write us uh, your best proposal. Exactly. Okay. No, that's, I mean, that's that's literally what happens. Okay. Um, and so... It's like these prize, it's like SpaceX prize or whatever. <laughs> that's so great. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so all of these organizations submitted, you know, submitted their proposals and then the NEA picked them. I think I know what I'm doing next year. I mean, sorry, you, you guys actually don't have to help me get a job. I'm just going to yes. start writing uh, policy proposals. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the fundamental perspective here is that if you look at energy, natural gas, if you look at semiconductors, whatever it is, especially the top level regulators realize that they don't know the specifications of XYZ product in XYZ industry. It's the people who are making it in that industry who are the experts. And so you know, if you're going to design industrial policy that works, you go to the people who know the most about it. So do you think that... Well, let me, I just want to add on to Andrew. I mean, one of, my, one of another just huge misconceptions of the Chinese state is that it's big. It's actually incredibly small. So if you look at the, the Chinese central government and compare it to something like the American federal government, it's, it's a fraction of the size. So it's not only that they realize that they don't know, it's also a bandwidth issue. Mm. These, are, these are small organizations. So it's, it kind of necessitates them, them outsourcing a lot of the policymaking. You know, it's interesting. That's a, that's a real echo that you hear with, um, you know, and like Dodd-Frank and they're writing the regulations in the U.S. And who are they calling on to, um, to inform the regulators, be, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and, and J.P. Morgan, all of their lobbyists are coming in. So I'm curious if you could sort of like ping Jia like where, where is there more regulatory capture going on? Uh-huh. Tricky in that the U.S. doesn't have, you know, state-owned enterprises, but... Um, you know, any way you can attack that question? Yeah, well, I think it's also important to understand that all of the universities are state-owned. Most of the think tanks that input into this process are state-owned or funded by the state in some way or are filled with ex-officials. So, you know, in that sense, you know, you could say that it is all happening kind of within the system. Mm. So you don't have a lot of private companies coming in and and telling the government how much natural gas they should use. It is the big national oil companies, and and it is actually even think tanks associated with the ministries that are writing the policies. Sure. So I think it's tough. (laughs) The the idea of regulatory capture is is more complicated in China because often, if we're talking energy, it's a a state-owned industry to begin with. Sure. is it is it regulatory capture when the state-owned companies are close with the regulators? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I I think it is the, the line. Is the line is sure. much fuzzier, right? And right now, I mean, the head of the the National Energy Administration, the main energy regulator, is actually formerly from the biggest oil company. Sure. Right. So, so so they go. You know, the heads of of these major SOEs are actually appointed by the organization department. They, they're essentially, you know officials in many ways so it's it's much it's much more all one team kind of pulling for well in, in certain industries at least there's there's kind of one giant blob 
um, in a way that's even more integrated than you would see in the uh, in the U.S. with the revolving door and whatnot. Yes, exactly. So Trey, you know, you you just said that one of your your favorite parts about following this whole thing was the um, was the interaction between all these different uh, organizations flowing into the policymaking process. I'm curious what you find most frustrating when doing this sort of policy analysis. Well, I, you know, I I don't know if it's frustrating. I think policies because it's a consensus oriented system and because it actually brings in so many different voices i would say one issue i have is that policy tends to be pretty pretty compromised mm. um and i think you know andrew's going to talk about that what we see right now going on with respect to to economic policy is is representative of that so you have a lot of different voices pulling in different directions. And at the end, it's just easier to say like, eh, a little from column A, a little from column B. And you, you end up with often kind of middle of the road policies or, or even policies that will be kind of internally contradictory. So Trey, you did a great transition for me, but I'm not going to use it because I have to talk <laughs> about this Lenin book I just finished. Um, so this fantastic Lenin biography published last year by Victor Sebastian called Lenin the Dictator, I think made China make a lot more sense. It's really shocking to me after having read a few, read a lot of Chinese history books and then now starting to read a few Soviet Union history books, the the extent to which there are parallels between the two systems and, and the extent to which the Chinese Chinese one really is modeled after what uh, Lenin and Stalin cooked up in the first, um, you know, in the first few decades of the Soviet Union. You know, we had five-year plans. We had uh, the party being involved in every part of the uh, part of the government. We have this Lenin-style hierarchical system where we're all reporting to the one guy who knows best. So I'm curious if if, if turning to this stuff has ever helped uh, demystify what's going on for you, or any thoughts on uh, on how China is really born out of the uh, the Soviet model. Well, I mean, I, I think you've you've explained it. I mean, if you want to understand the Chinese Communist Party, it's important to understand the Soviet Communist Party. I mean, this is a, a, a Marxist-Leninist party by, and they're very explicit about that. You know, there has been the cynification of of cynicization of uh, of Marxism, but certainly organizationally, the party is very much a, a Leninist organization. Sure. So now turning to the, the recent stimulus efforts. So first, Andrew, if you could talk a little bit about what's been going on in the broader economy before we turn to how the Chinese government has, has started to grapple with the, uh, the changes in the macro situation. Yeah, well, it's hard to know exactly where to start at a given point in time. Uh, but basically... The founding of the Soviet Union? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, let's dial back. <laughs> It's 1911. I and... <laughs> think five-year plan number six. Um, so, I mean, I think one place to start is sort of uh, 2015, and I'll quickly kind of use that to, to get to where we are today. 2015 was a really a pivotal moment in terms of China's economy and Chinese economic policymaking. You had deflation for four or five years. There was financial turmoil at that time, another stock market crash, botched currency adjustment, which led to a slight devaluation, but then kicked off months of very large capital outflows. And the leadership really kind of panicked at that time and didn't have a plan, and they kind of huddled together and finally came out with this new economic framework called supply-side structural reform in December of 2015. And since that time, that's been the major economic framework. That led to much better economic performance for a host of reasons in 2016 
into 2017 and carrying us through the first half of 2018. Mm. So we've had a really a good, basically, two and a half years for the economy, and it's really been since the middle of this past summer that we've started to decelerate again. And despite, you know, most people looking at China's economy through the lens of the trade war, most of the reasons that the economy is currently decelerating are domestic. And there's two key ones. One is that local governments aren't spending on infrastructure like they were. And that's partly because the central government said, we've got too much debt, we need to harden budget constraints at local governments, there's too much craziness going on. So they started to, to, in the first half of this year, to tighten those screws. Of course, that slowed investment, and the economy started to slow. Secondly, we've had a financial de-risking campaign, again related to the, the debt in the economy that's built up since the global financial crisis. That kicked off in April 2017, and we're now seeing sort of the delayed effects of that, sure. uh, tightening financial conditions and especially hurting the private sector. So tightened financial conditions and very weak infrastructure investment, and you get a domestic slowdown. And so that that really kind of kicked into gear mid-2018. Everything from an economic policy standpoint since July has been, okay, how are we going to deal with this slowdown without going to the traditional tools of major credit and monetary-led stimulus. Yeah, it's interesting because this really seems like something that does not fit into the five-year plan, where there needs to be this sort of more ad hoc policymaking. We're responding to the economy slowing and these uh, second-order effects of policies that were laid out in the main planning documents. That's right. And it's, it, it, I don't know that it's necessarily unique to China, but it certainly seems that it's more pronounced in China is the fact that policy is best, is at its best when it's proactive. Sure. So they instituted this program of supply-side structural reform in 2016, late 2015, early 2016, you know, cutting capacity, those kind of things. They were very much on the front foot trying to deal with their economic challenges. The financial de-risking, which started last year, was very much a, a proactive approach. The problem is since the economy started slowing in the middle of 2018, I think they didn't expect a the intensity of the slowdown mm. b its effect on the private sector or c to be in a trade war sure and so since july basically they've instead of being on the front foot from a policy standpoint have been on the back foot and have been reactive and that's where policy is not good so what they've done since that time is basically say we're not going to give up the priorities that we had before so we still want local governments to harden their budget constraints and we still want banks to de-risk and do less uh, less risky lending but we also want banks to support the private sector, which is inherently more risky activity. Sure. As you write, uh, China's vaunted economic managers aren't infallible, and they're currently making a familiar mistake. They are trying to accomplish too many objectives simultaneously, many of which conflict with each other. Instead of engineering a recovery, the confused policy mix is only feeding a growing feeling of uncertainty among Chinese markets, businesses, and households. So let's walk through now what this sort of response is and how it's working at cross-purposes. Sure. Well, so first, I think it's important to say the confused policy response and sort of the hurting of the private sector combined with the uncertainty of the trade war is really the number one thing it's doing is hurting sentiment sure. domestically. So the economy is slowing and top leadership's worried about it. But the negative sentiment, especially among domestic companies, is sort of out of proportion with actually how slow the economy is growing. Sure. So that's that's one element that's important to keep in mind here. And it's kind of, it's also important 
to note, you know, when U.S. policymakers look at, say, the Chinese stock market, uh, they think, you know, the Chinese economy is imploding, but really, you know, there's a, there's a disconnect there, and the stock market's falling largely because of the sentiment issue. You know, it's interesting because I had a, we did an episode recently with Logan Wright, and he was talking about actually the outsized importance of this whole confidence game in China with this huge potential debt problem. And, and people kind of really need to believe that the government is willing to bail out almost any and everything for, for the game to keep going. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, sure, it, consumer sentiment, whatever, the numbers are strong. But on the other hand, it seems like China, uh, more than almost any other country in the world, is sort of built on this confidence game with the consumers and market players really needing to, to trust that the, uh, the government's going to be there for them. Well, I'd say that it's another one of those things where it works the same in other economies. It's just more pronounced here. Like sure. Every financial system in the world really relies on its regulators and government to be the ultimate backstop in case of a crisis. And when crises happen, it's because typically because lenders, interbank lenders, stop trusting each other. Sure. Counterparty risk goes up. Everyone holds their cash. The economy grinds to a halt. Liquidity flies into thin air. Sure. So I, I totally agree with Logan's point, but I think, again, that it's not necessarily super unique to China, but the but maybe the scale. Yeah, sure. exactly. Is, is unique to China. Okay, so coming back to the uh, the response here, you were speaking earlier about how the government has now decided that money needs to be pushed out to private companies and small businesses. I mean, it's the Chinese SBA. Like, this is great. This yeah. is the most popular uh, part of the U.S. government. What's there to uh, What's there to be unhappy about? Well, so what's really unique about this economic downturn is actually how measured or reticent policymakers have been to enact big stimulus, right? Mm. So we had the massive stimulus in 2008, 2009, 2010, and then we've had many stimuli every downturn since then. And this time, we haven't really had it. We've had a few moves on the fiscal side where they've you know cut taxes and, and ramped up a little bit of local government uh, bond issuance, but on this, in terms of scale, very small. Mm. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is one is they they know that if they do that, they're just going to add to their debt problem and, and they don't want to do that. But secondly, those macro lever, levers are not particularly effective right now. Sure. So why, you know, pull on a lever, worsen your debt load if it's not actually going to help the thing you want? Sure. So instead, they've been trying to ease administrative restraints and overall uh, business environment issues for companies, lowering costs, cutting taxes, now, most recent measures trying to help employment and also trying to give more support to the private sector. It's that last part that really is not working very well. And that's because the main way that they're trying to do it is by basically you know, lecturing the banks to lend more to the private sector. And the banks just aren't set up to lend to the private sector. Oh, I, I was just going to jump in to say what you know. Some of what's so interesting of, of what's going on is going back to Logan's point about about the confidence game is that you know, in many ways, the Chinese authorities have been too successful. Sure. Um, and so, I think what you see now is, you know, everybody has always been so confident that at the at the slightest hint of a downturn, the government will step in and and shore everybody up and make everybody whole again. And so, that's what you know, supply side structural reform and this current economic leadership has really been trying to push back against is to say, look. We are not going to backstop everybody, that we're going to try to introduce some sort of accountability in, into this system. And so they're, you know, what we've seen, and it's been really amazing, is that they've been, they've been loath to, to step in. Sure. And I'd say on the back of that, a lot of the things that we track to, to 
You know, I generally agree with Logan's point, but I would say where I depart is that we've seen several specific measures over the past year and a half to actually try to introduce moral hazard into the system. Sure. To say the government isn't the ultimate backstop. They're doing things like up, updating the bank bankruptcy law. Why would you do that unless you expect <laughs> a bank to go bankrupt? Uh, they are, you know, in wealth management products sold in bank, they've instituted a rule where Every sale has to be video and audio taped. And part of the rule is so that... Deep fakes, man. Don't worry. We're going to get around it. Part of that rule is so, you know, so that the salespeople don't lie about what's in the product. But it's also so that if the, 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 the buyer or investor is supposed to be on record saying, okay, I understand the risk. And if then the product blows up and they go to the government... Or the bank. And what say, are you protesting, they, man? Come on. <laughs> they have this and they can say, we have you on record saying you understood the risk here. So, I mean, we do see them trying to slowly introduce some moral hazard and to to create more confidence in to the system. To get rid of moral hazard. Or so, yeah, yeah, yeah. To get rid of more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to institute some non-moral hazard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a very tricky tightrope right, for the government to walk. Because if you do too much of this, then it all blows up too fast. Exactly. Well, they take, they in, in this de-risking campaign, they have talked a lot about the risk of addressing risk. Sure. So, you know, they, they you know, and you have a, some notes here about, you know, the vaunted economic managers. I mean, Chinese economic policymakers do make, mistake, make mistakes, and we are... I don't think it's a good policy to put your faith in any policymaker, let alone a, a Chinese policymaker, if you're a company or investor or whatever. But they have shown a pretty robust understanding of where the issues lie in this most recent round of, of de-risking. And again, the fact that they're sort of, they've been thinking sort of second and third order effects, I think it warrants a relatively cautious approach. Sure. Cautious, cautious on whose end? Cautious on the regula- regulators' end, meaning like if you're going to institute... Um, you know, risk awareness, you don't want to do it all at one time because then you bring on the very crisis that you're trying to avert, right? And so I think that's what's sometimes unfair about commentary on China is everyone says, oh, they're, uh, you know, they're loading themselves up with debt, 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 debt. They're going to implode. And then as soon as they start to address the debt, everyone says the economy is going to go off a cliff. And so I'm sure these guys don't read the Western commentary, but that that kind of mentality towards policymaking is just really, really frustrating because you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Or maybe, I mean, maybe they're like those, there's basketball players who say like, ah, no, I don't read the media. Yeah. No, no, no. But secretly, you know, what's Xi on Jinping their, who are they following Twitter. on their Xi Twitter Jinping feed? is definitely on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we should just give listeners a bit of a taste of what these sort of middle of the road uh, regulatory advice ends up coming out sounding like. So you guys quote in your recent piece, that authorities describe policy without any irony as, quote, neutral, moderately tight, and moderately loose with a well-controlled money supply. The People's Bank of China also acknowledges how many fires it's trying to put out when it says a, quote, comprehensive balance should be established within these multiple objectives, end quote, and promises to make, quote, timely and dynamic adjustments and fine-tuning according to the changing situation. So we are not um, looking at NGP targeting at 3%, and that's all we're to, right? I mean, there are a lot of dials and a lot of uh, things to be balanced here, it seems. Totally. I mean, reading the... They never take... It doesn't sound any better in Chinese, I am sure. No, no. (laughs) They they never take any goals out. 
is the problem. They only <laughs> add goals in. So it's like, you know, 10 years ago, it was like monetary policy should be stable. Now it's monetary policy should be stable and liquidity should be abundant. And, you know, and you just add in until you get this laundry list. And I think, you know, figuring out what the PBOC's stance actually is from that is vir virtually impossible. You kind of have to see what they're actually doing in the markets through open market operations, other liquidity management, et cetera. I mean, it makes, you know, people... People talk about the inscrutable statements that the Fed has with, you know, small adjustments to that you read into, a, well, that mean three hikes next year or four hikes. I mean, this the PBOC puts the Fed to shame in terms of inscrutability. For oh, sure. for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, uh, I imagine on the political side of things, we, we also get uh, particularly painful language to wade through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's what does it mean when they change it from, you know, Tuijin to Tsujin, both of which to me just look like promote or push forward or something, you know, but yeah, we, we have we have long, long, very boring conversations about this within the office on a, on a frequent basis. So recently we have had the Huawei CFO thrown behind bars flying, uh, just, you know, th thought she was going to go hang out in Latin America for a few days, but picked the wrong connecting flight through Canada. So what's going on here and what does this mean for, um, for the trade war, for uh, future international technology competition? What are, the, um, what are the main takeaways for this story? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bombshell story. I think this tech aspect of of the competition between the US and China is the most important aspect especially from the Chinese side there's you know people focus on the trade board but that's one that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of there's trade but then there's the investment relationship and the tech piece sure. and, and to me the tech's most the most important and it's clear that the US is building a case against Huawei people thought they were for a long time for, for breaking sanctions against Iran Iran by selling goods to Iranian companies uh, that had U.S.-made parts. And, I mean, beyond that, the building of that case, it's hard to say exactly how this is going to, to feed in. I don't know that it necessarily derails the specific trade negotiation. Sure. But it only fuels the flames in, in terms of China's desire to indigenize core tech, to be self-reliant so that it doesn't have to rely on core technological imports from the U.S. And that's where, that's where China's really focused. I mean, they don't like the trade war. The trade war is an irritant to them. They'd rather not have it, but they're focused on the tech side. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and I think the big thing that this appears to be a harbinger of is a gradual decoupling of the Chinese and Western technological ecosystems, which is just huge. And I, I think, you know, something else that's really interesting about the detention of, of the Huawei CFO, it happened in Canada, right? So the U.S. got Canada on side for this thing. Sure. Um, and, you know, this comes in the wake of the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, all saying we're not going to use Huawei technology or components in our 5G infrastructure. You know, this is not just a U.S.-China thing. This is increasingly becoming at least an Anglosphere China thing and could very well mm. become a kind of China versus the West type of thing. And that's that's massive. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, and, the you know, you project forward. It's from a geopolitical standpoint, obviously huge implications. But from a business standpoint, if you project forward 10 years and all these countries have said, we're not going to 
allow Huawei technology not potentially be compatible with their systems. If you're a company and you go to Pakistan or Angola or something like that and you want to do business, and they are using Huawei infrastructure and Huawei hardware and potentially software, how do you how do you deal with that? And this is a huge. You start question. selling the uh, the cross compatible <laughs> doohickey. Yeah. I mean, here's well, a yeah, real market yeah, opportunity yeah, for yeah. you, right? That's our next business. <laughs> but I mean, this is I I think we're just at the early stages of thinking through the implications for global business. It's definitely going to have a negative impact on transaction costs, to say the least, but could be a significant drag on global economic growth at some point. HarperCollins, get ready for the Jordan Schneider book proposal <laughs> on, the, uh, on the coming tech trade war uh, or the global, the global tech battlefield. So um, uh, Andrew and Trey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much. So I just defended my thesis and am now officially on the job market. I'm hoping to find a role based in Beijing in public policy, investment, or strategy, and would very much appreciate your help. So before moving to China, I graduated with a history degree from Yale, worked at the Eurasia Group in D.C. analyzing public policy, and then moved on to Bridgewater Associates, a global macro hedge fund, as a research analyst. I spent the past summer interning in Didi's government relations office and am comfortable in a Chinese-language working environment. So please reach out via LinkedIn, email, or on WeChat at Jordan Schneider, one word. Thanks so much for your support. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the